Welcome to season four of the Coffee and Geography podcast. The aim of the show is to get to know, explore, and celebrate the diverse and intersectional range of people and their love for the world. Join your host, Kit Marie Rackley, and have fun exploring all the myriad of ways guests can connect their lives to geography. Today, let's listen to the human component of disasters, our common human identity, capturing essence of place and life in photos and other things. Got your brew ready? Great! Enjoy the listen. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Coffee and Geography. And I'm having the absolute pleasure for the second time now. It's almost like we're becoming friends, but we've got a long way to go yet. Uh, I'm joined by Elin Kelman. Uh, hello. Good to see you again. Hello, Kit. How are you doing? And thank you again for everything you're doing and the opportunity to be here. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, it's it's going really, really well. And folks, um, what, what I'll do, I'll put it in the show notes. We might reference something that we've done together already, which is something called the uh, the Reteach podcast, um, which uh, Elon was very kind to give give his time with, with his book, Disaster by Choice. We might have a little bit of a chat about that, but um, but we've covered that ground really, really well with the Reteach podcast. And also, let's we don't usually do highs and shout outs at the beginning of the podcast, you usually do them at the end. But hi to Ellie, Ellie Barker, to the curious geographer, because Elon, you had the pleasure of uh, her company uh, with her videos, her YouTube video. And hello, Ellie. I mean, you've been doing fantastic work. So exciting yep. how much you support people and, of course, your students. And this is about geography. This is about teaching. So thank mm. you, Ellie, for all the inspiration you give. And it certainly rubs off in the work I see Kit doing. So again, oh, thank yes. you, Kit. I find her very, very inspirational. It's so, it's so wonderful that, that she's she's a, a, a colleague as well. So, uh, yeah, so folks, in the show notes, um, I will put the links to both the video that Elon did with Ellie and the uh, Reteach podcast episode that we did. But we might, you know, we might overlap a little bit. So um, Elon Kilman is Professor of Disasters and Health at University College London um, and a Professor Second at the University of Adgar Christiansand, Norway. And we might talk a little bit about Norway then. Um, his overall research interest is linking disasters and health, integrating climate change into both. And the three main areas focusing on is disaster diplomacy and health diplomacy, island sustainability involving safe and healthy communities in isolated locations, and risk education for health and disasters. I'm wondering, Elon, have you been keeping a lot of attention on COP28? I've, I have with like a double face palm, as I do every year. I think the double face palm or maybe the quadruple face palm <laughs> may be yes. the one to go for. I watch yeah. it and I decided fairly early on in getting involved in these topics that I didn't think that going to these climate change meetings mm. would be productive. So I must admit that I've never been to a COP. I don't have a lot of intention of going to one, although who knows? And the answer is simply because when I got into this field... We are already so many cops down the road, and they yeah. clearly were not being effective. We're thinking that they started in 1995. They haven't actually quite happened every year, but more or less. And this was number 28, which means it's yeah. not only some of the students are far younger than the cop process. It's some of the teachers are younger <laughs> than the cop process. And it's such a distraction. Yes. It's such a circus, it's such an extravaganza, 
It's so compartmentalized in terms of its mandate and what it's meant to do. And despite the 28 meetings, it hasn't yet achieved its mandate. And what you know what irritates me? Well, a lot of things irritate me about COP, but is this whole very, very artificial at the end of every single one, the artificial pats on the back, smiling photo opportunities. Yes, haven't we done a good job? And like you're just sitting there folks like myself and you and a, a lot of people listening to this podcast going you are just completely detached from reality all you folks just there so what you're saying that kid, we've done it, a good job what you're saying kid is it's not just cop 28 but it's number 28 of what a fantastic success we've had and congratulations yes of course oh yeah and uh ed, ed hawkins don't have any more you know doesn't need red anymore for his climate stripes does he Oh, and, and so but, it's yeah. really disheartening <laughs> to see yeah. how much time, energy, resources, effort is put in. People are so well-meaning. They are so dedicated and they are really trying to help us all. And we know that the process itself is set up to be so fundamentally flawed yes, as yeah. evidenced by the fact that it hasn't succeeded. And, you know, despite the fact, yeah, okay, we are having a a bit of a laugh about it and it's easy to criticize it, which I think we ought to do, but it is very difficult seeing people put a whole year's effort into it every single year and then come out of it with, as you say, the artificial backslapping and the lack of success. Yet Mm. we shouldn't be too despondent because irrespective of COP, there's so much which is going to try and address climate change to stop it happening and and work on its impacts yep. so it's not saying we're in a good space obviously we're we're creating major major problems for the world we're changing the climate rapidly and substantively and there's no doubt about that but what i would like to see is a lot more emphasis a lot more headlines so much more highlighting the successes we have had and what people are doing to actually act rather than however well-meaning doing their sort of world cop tour coming to mm. at the end of every cop and an agreement which really offers little yes absolutely well very well said and people listen you know people long-term listeners of this podcast you know wouldn't be nodding their heads listening to you there really because there's been plenty of examples of people i've spoken to on this very podcast where they've gone yes you know there are some amazing folks there doing their thing every from on all scales you know and uh in very very importantly you know the personal and local scale which can make huge differences. And it actually, what, when you were saying that, Elon, there was, um, there was, there's two people in particular that, that was worth mentioning that I've spoken to in the past. And one was uh, Rebecca Nestor, who's a climate psychologist, and she works for Norfolk and Waveney Mind up here in, the, in East Anglia. And, you know, and, and the amount of work that her and her colleagues are doing, you know, with regards to the mental health side of things, eco-anxiety, you know, reconnecting with nature and things like that. It's beautiful work that she's doing. And that kind of thing doesn't get talked about at all. And, you know, only briefly mentioned in things like the IPCC reports. And then you've got um, someone who's working on a bit of a wider scale who I really admire. And that's um, I think he's now Professor. Um, and that's uh, Keston Perry, who's um, he's actually a, a political economist. But he's he's uh, he's he works on um, decolonial efforts in terms of climate uh, reparations and things like that, especially from the Caribbean. And um, and he's in when I interviewed him for the very first time and he was telling about, you know, how climate change really started back in the, the empire building colonial days. And then and his work since is just 
you know, my, so yes, I totally agree folks for, for all these people we see on the TV, you know, for show and all that kind of stuff. There is a th- thousands, thousands of people like you out there, like Elon, like myself, my guests who are doing what we need to do. So let's stay positive. So uh, we started on a, yeah, yeah, but that was my bad. That was my bad going straight into the topic mentioning cops. So thanks for bringing that on a, on a more positive note towards that, Elon. Um, right. Before I forget, are you have a, a, a drink with you, a brew? A coffee, oh, a tea? I have a glass of water. I, I tend to drink a lot of water, so when needed, <laughs> I'm ready to go with that. Yeah, when we when we have such heavy hitting topics, perhaps just like keeping your your palate moist is probably the best thing, to be honest. Unlike me, who gets jittered up on uh, on caffeine all the time. Um, awesome. So um, you're down there in London, so University mm-hmm. College London, but um, you've mentioned. Norway, obviously, and I know that you're very well traveled because uh, one thing I do want you to talk about a little bit uh, as well is the kind of the, the, the kind of photographs you take when you go on your travels. So hold that thought for a second because you might want to segue into it. But the question I always ask people Elin, is is when it comes to their uh, identity, is kind of how has geography and and the, your lived experiences of the places you've been to how have they formed? Elon Kalman of today. So, um, you know, as, as know, from I have some influences of being in America for a bit. So, and you know, I've, I'm originally come from Essex. I've got Cockney parents, all that kind of stuff, and it's all formed my identity today. But what about yourself? So, if you can, if you could like pin yourself geographically with your identity, how what what would that look like? What would the makeup be? I'm really intrigued because you've been to a lot of places. Well, I think that the standard response from people like us who have the privilege to really be trying to do better for the world and for humans is that our geographical identity is a planet, you know, the usual citizen of the world, citizen of planet Earth. And the travels have just been a privilege. It's about learning. It's about exchanging. It's about seeing and observing and also having people point out different perspectives because just looking gives only one aspect of it, one dimension talking to people, listening to what they say, observing their reactions, having them describe myself also, opens minds. It opens pathways, it opens directions. And so that's where we, we I, I very much say that, yeah, my identity is really sort of the fundamental basis of our species, being human, and recognizing that it is a wonderful, wonderful world out there. So many just amazing people with all their diversity, yes. all the variety, all their perspectives, and that's where I've been really fortunate to be able to live in the different places and travel, pick up ideas, learn different perspectives, not only through seeing, but also through listening, such as working on different languages, understanding mm. words which do and do not exist across languages, across cultures, and different interpretations. And it really shows how ironically human we all are, and obviously should be because that's what we are. So it makes sort of wondering why there is so much hate in the world. Why do people say over this tiny bit of land, I'm going to threaten absolute destruction and demoralize others and even force others to leave or to die? Why do we then look at other species and think they're there for our exploitation? Mm. Why do we create the wider structures and systems, which mean that people have no choice but to attack humans or other species. 
Uh, but ultimately, it's then saying, well, okay, things are in a bad way. There's not uh, necessarily a lot of good that can come out of certain situations. But then it's up to us to try to do better. So how can we revel Certainly. in the diversity and variety to improve? How can we recognize all the wonderful aspects that the environment gives us and that humans give us and that our interaction and intertwining give us? And what can we do to work together in order to improve ourselves in the world? And again, it really circles back to saying, well, what's my identity? Well, for good or bad, I'm a human being on Earth. And so how can we work with other human beings and other species on Earth in order to ensure that we are not hurting each other, but instead creating a much better future, which we all want and we all deserve? Mm. And, you, you know, you would hope that that's, that's, that's a common identity for us all, really, fundamentally, you know, Um some people find that easier to access that part of our shared identity than others. Um, I, I, I'm of a firm belief that everybody has the ability to, to grasp that it's, and as you know, we could, we could talk forever, a whole new podcast about the, the, the protect, you know, the factors that allow that to happen and, and the, the risk factors that prevent that from happening. But I, on, I really do strongly believe that, you know, fundamentally we all have that, part in us and that we should be able to 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 bond over that so that that's a really love that's a very unique and lovely um way of putting that are you a business or organization passionate about ethical practices products and systems is being sustainable inclusive and equitable core to your values and do you want to spread the word amongst listeners who share these ideals? Then sponsor the Coffee and Geography podcast. There are pricing options to suit a range of needs, and you know you are supporting independent educational efforts that aligns with your aims. Visit bit.ly slash coffee geog sponsor for more details. I'm going to, with regards to your, your, your travels and your photography, um, in particular, um, folks, you, you, I'll, I'll put the link into Elon's website with with all these very interesting photographs that I'll put there. Um, what I've done, um, what I've done, Elon, is I've I've taken your photography list, um, which is well, you've you've got on your website is amazing. You've got all these locations, the times and the dates that you've been there, um, and you know you can click on all these kind of things. And you can look at it by country and stuff like that. But underneath your country list, you've got your you've got your photographs by other themes, right? So what I've done um, is that I've put your other themes into a random topic generator, and so and then you'll come up with something, and then you've got to talk about. It. Now this is a little game that we play on this podcast called Jog On, where you can choose three of the five things to talk about. So uh, you say Jog On if you want to talk about it more, or take a hike if you want to skip it. But you can only use your skip twice. So I'm going to stick this through a random generator. I am ready to go. This sounds exciting, <laughs> which also tells me remembering all the photos and themes which I've posted on the website. <laughs> right. I actually have um, a spinner sound effect. So let's give this a play Ooh. while I press the... Uh... Right. So we got here candles is the first one, Elon. So jog on. you can you want to jog on about candles, right? Yes. Tell us, talk us about candles. And if you can remember any photographs you took with candles, that would be amazing. 
<laughs> there's always multiple levels and obviously the candles are very artistic flames are fascinating to watch preferably when yes. they are under control rather than actually being an out of control fire <laughs> yes. and yes. we use candles for ceremonies for light to indicate different aspects like shadows and spaces and often simply for aesthetic purposes so the artistry within different type of candles and more to the point their flames is just something which really appeals in terms of working with lighting working with shadow working with movement working with stilling rapid movement in order to generate this artistry more to the mm. core or the scientific aspect of my work when we're talking about being prepared for emergencies one of the items on on a list has to be some form of light my preference is actually a wind up torch or battery operated torch because not everyone has the ability to wind up and certainly mm. if someone goes for battery operated torch have plenty of spare batteries but often people will say candles and yeah they actually right, work yeah. very well as long as obviously someone has matches or some form of lighting um or some form of way to light the candle and interestingly one of the UK ministers recently said that people need to be far more prepared in their own household and mention candles so it's always a balance because yeah they are definitely on that list of items for an emergency kit they are a fire hazard and there are are alternatives like the wind up or battery operated torch mm. so it's sort of that balance of thinking we have this everyday object which used to be absolutely essential that's what people would use for lighting when we didn't have electricity they're now used in many different ways today but they are also a practical item when we mm. think about different religions or different households some people actually just enjoy them they turn off yes. the lights light some tea candles and that creates ambiance we in do that here we see them frequently and several of my photos are actually from wonderful candles in yeah. restaurants so yeah they're part of our everyday society uh used for many purposes used to be essential but they do have a very practical purpose which people need to think about whether they want to use them as an emergency kit or look for non-fire prone mm. objects amazing i'm i was actually going to you 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 stole my thunder there because i was actually going to go into about talking about emergency kits and stuff like that because um, one of the classic things and all the geography teachers listening and students will will know oh you remember that lesson we had to like prepare an emergency kit like from in case there's a, a you know some something happens and and like um and I, d I remember quite often actually like the debate around should you really have a candle in there or not you know what if there's a gas leak or something like that so and and i know i know i'm now coming into your realm because because of your book disaster by choice where you say disasters are human made they're not natural and things like that yeah and have light in a candle where there's gas leaks around is a human disaster <laughs> that's for sure um so I, that was that was um fascinating that you you mentioned that I'm going to spin the wheel again and see what comes up this time. Oh, okay. It's interesting. Tale of Toronto. Okay, I'm happy to jog on with that. Absolutely. All right, go for it. So, so. <laughs> so oh, okay. So, who? Ah, uh, now you've worked it out. You've looked at the photos. Ah, uh, so do you want to describe what you see? What? Who, <gasps> why? Where is Tale of Toronto? Okay, this is. My heart has just really oh, um, it's Taylor is a dog, an absolute gorgeous dog. I mean, 
is, are they a, are they a, a mutt? So yeah, it must be a mutt, a crossbreed between two. Looks like a bit Alsatian in there. Maybe. So yes, Taya is a dog and one of my parents' dogs. The geographical aspect comes in being in Toronto because that's where my parents are and that's where Taya oh. ended up having that life. And we don't quite know the combination of breeds which she was, so a complete mutt. My parents did do a DNA test, the doggy DNA test, and it came Ooh. back with sort of just a bizarre combination, which some of it was absolutely clear within her behavior and her appearance, and some <laughs> of it, really? So she was very athletic, as you can see some from the photos. Yes. Loved going after frisbees, loved going after balls, was an incredible runner. And because of our expectation that there was some border calling there, the mm. usual is if you're tired going out on a walk, but your dog, your border collie or border collie cross still needs exercise, just get two people, stand 100 meters apart, and <laughs> run back and forth forever. And that's absolutely what This is did. true. This is so true. Yeah. Oh, I, I, when it, folks, when I made that big R, is because of the, the last picture is, is Taya in a Halloween costume in 2012. That's just so cute. Oh, a little bat on the head. Oh, yeah, so, but I can definitely... Oh, that right. means that you recognised her underneath that Halloween costume. Oh, yeah. Well, oh, it's no. because I've seen that face myself when I've, um, you know, because I used to have dogs as well. We had two dogs, one after the other. Our first dog was a purebred German Shepherd who was not just our family pet, but was also uh, my dad's police dog as well. Okay. Um, and and he was he was beloved by my dad. Um, did quite quite a heroic figure in in Essex Police where um he was he was a star of a comic so one of my dad's colleagues was also a, a graphic artist I did like one page a3 size comic strips of of Terry and his dog Ben uh, which was hilarious they were comp they were absolutely hilarious but also um Ben and some other dogs were combined to into a, a novel called Triton um which was like an amateur novel about about um, service dogs, and that was really really fun. So, and then when when Ben passed, well, you had to put him down. I think he was fourteen. Mm. He lived a really good life, and that's for a, for a service pure breed. That's actually really really good. And he had taken bullets and and knives from my dad and everything. But he, my dad was devastated when when he had to be put down because his back legs just he couldn't support him anymore. Well, and, awesome. and and for Ben, that was that's effectively the end of his life because you know because of what the life he's led and then we had a second and then my, my dad we got a second german shepherd who didn't take to being trained very well by my dad uh, so we became more like that and actually taya reminds me very very much of our second uh, dog he was he wasn't a pure uh malsatian or german shepherd i think he was he had some muttonness in there but because he, he looked more like taya than, than a pure German Shepherd. So yeah, so when I saw these pictures of your of your parents' old dog, that definitely brought back memories to to our second dog anyway. So and and was I, with your second dog? Ben as well, actually, oh. because my dad was um you can imagine the emotional attachment yeah. that my parents and my family had to our first dog. And um you you can imagine that my dad was trying to recapture that in a second dog, but of course dogs have got their own personalities, their own their own character and whatnot. So uh, he, he was a completely different dog, but it was, uh, he ended up being quote unquote, my dog. You know, I was in, I was in my mid teens. I was the one who would take him out for walks and go play with him and stuff like that. And he was absolutely 
Lovely dog. Yeah. Oh, I could spend all day looking at these pictures. <laughs> on your website about a photo essay of Ben 1 from Essex or Ben 2 from Essex? Oh, we're going to have to, yeah, we'll have to, uh, we're going to have to organize that. So, okay, I'll see if I can do it. Now, Elon's put me on the spot now. Oh, okay, there are two fantastic, right, three fantastic pictures I will try and find. The first one is that they're all three of them of, of Ben the first, if you like, Ben Sr., where he's got a giant stick which is think think of those comedy scenes with animals or youtube videos of animals where the stick is so big that they can't go anywhere like through a fence gap or through a doorway yeah. and they keep getting stuck this thing was huge and he's so he's, he's he's standing there with this great big stick this is wider than a window um and then you've got another one with me in a onesie i was like i was just about standing so i must have been cruising or just learning to walk and i was in a onesie like a snow onesie and there's me standing next to ben and then the other one was uh, a picture of Ben guarding my pram outside of a sweet shop, outside the newsagents. Because back in those days, in the 80s, leave, leave, leave little Kit in the pram outside while I go in the shop. Ben, stay. And every time some stranger would come up to, to the pram, my, my parents said, Ben used to go, <laughs> you know, and then the person was like, well, okay, all right, I'll stay away from that pram. <laughs> and then, and then uh, my mum or dad came out of the shop and Ben – had not moved a muscle next to that pram. Hmm. He was very well trained, very well disciplined. But um, as soon as my dad took his uniform off, he was a lovely, fun-loving dog. But as soon as my dad put the uniform on, it was like a straight to attention, you know. It was ready to go to work. Absolutely. So, Dogs you, know that. And, and Taya loves sticks yeah. too. But interesting, speaking of geography, here's a Taya geography story. Oh, go so for it. In, in her later years when she was just enjoying sort of the sunset of her life by sleeping and eating, which dogs do very well, she <laughs> decided that she wasn't that enthralled by walks. Whereas in mm. her earlier years, she would absolutely love them and go running and bounding. So when I would take her out, she would drag and yeah. she wouldn't want to go out. It was almost as if she couldn't walk, as you're saying, Ben's hind legs started going. Yeah. As soon as I would turn around to go back to my parents' house, she would be out in front pulling me with amazing strength. And I tried, I experimented, I tried different routes. I tried turning 90 degrees or 180 degrees. She always knew when we were heading back to my parents' house, when we yes. were heading back home. And so if I was trying to fool her, but she knew we were getting farther away, she would be dragging and would pretend not to be able to walk. As no matter what direction, as soon as I was heading back, she'd be out in front, all four legs going, dragging me. Geographical oh. awareness in dogs. Oh, they, I swear they have a sixth sense. So, so with our second dog, what's what happens that my when my mum was at work and I and I'd come home from school early, you know, we was old enough to go home by ourselves, you know, raid the raid the larder, get ourselves something to eat while waiting for mum or dad to get home, whatever, but. At a certain time of the day, Ben would go, Ben, Ben Jr. we call him, would go to the door and just sit there. Hmm. And then 15 minutes later, my mum, who only walked, worked 15 minutes walk away, my mum would walk through the door. And as she said, the same happened when I used to leave school. She's, it's, like, it's almost like Ben knew that I was coming home from school or my mum was coming home from work. So he would go and sit by the front door you know, with his bum on the floor, hind, leg, uh, hind legs on the floor, front legs up, wagging his tail, and he'll just sit there and sit there. And you could hear as you're coming down the road, um, 
him starting to bark. My goodness. You know? Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, how does he know? So, and I never think, I mean, perhaps we could find some research on this somewhere, but but was it because he had he had a, a really good sense of time, maybe? Kind of, oh, this is about the time when Kit's going to get home or about the time when Mary's going to get home? Or was it more... Like what, what happened when yeah. the clock changed? The same thing happened. Well, <laughs> so what's your second theory then? It, it can't be time because the clock. Yeah, were, well, uh, maybe there was a bit of a lag, but but as far as as far as we could tell, there was he'd do it every he'd do it all the time. Okay. He'd do it all the time. So so they seem to have this sixth sense somehow, but we don't know the the workings of our own mind, let alone the workings of animal minds, do we? So, <laughs> um, oh, that was blo- lovely. Well, you know, the only the only thing now, uh, Elon, is that we've only got. We've got three topics left, and we've only got one we can choose now, so you're going to have to uh, be selective. Right, spinning the wheel again, and then what are we going to come up this time? Oh, oh, that was lovely, talking about Taya. Right, parliaments. You want to jog on or take a hike? Parliaments, are you happy to jog on? Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, go for it. Parliaments. We want parliaments. And quite right. And government is part of geography. When we're talking about history, when we're talking about places, when we're talking about centers and peripheries, the question is, what does parliament do for us? What do we do for parliament? And that completely varies. So even thinking back to candles, unfortunately, too much or so much is ceremonial. Mm. And completely pointless. When we think about the UK, so many new MPs come in and say, we seriously to that? <laughs> Why? And the answer is, well, it's tradition. It's worked for 300 years. Why change now? We seem to forget that the parliament encapsulates all these aspects, but surely parliament should never lose its function in order to preserve form, which is a big challenge. And of course, many parliaments in the world are just there for show. They really don't have any powers whatsoever. So from a geographical perspective, looking at the buildings, there's the architectural aspects, there's the placement, there's the colors and the spaces in which they sit. But more to the point from geography is what they do for us, what we do for them and the huge variety, even to the extent that in some countries, a head of state is the same as a head of government. In other countries like the UK, they're different. In some countries, the executive branch has to be chosen from elected parliamentarians in some countries it can be any appropriate citizen so when we talk about these different branches of government typically executive legislative and judicial the intertwining and the separation how they function what they provide to us is all a part part of our society and particularly again if we sort of even go back to cop 28 or or my specialty regarding disasters it is life or death situations which are made in those buildings mm. some of them yeah. are fairly mundane, some of them are spectacular and even though we try and govern ourselves in these ways according to what we call countries or sovereign states which then has this place called parliament the differences are just remarkable and really demonstrates how history time how place space and people the three elements of geography come together in terms of how we govern ourselves and how we don't have options to govern ourselves. Yeah. And that actually brings me up, reminds me of the, was it a couple of months ago when um, the Australian parliament decided not to recognize 
Aboriginal sovereignty, basically, within and have give them a voice within Parliament. Which I mean, I'll have to relook about the story, but there was something which I was, I couldn't. Well, the referendum that was right. It was a referendum, it's, wasn't it? And and I just, I just couldn't quite quite grasp, you know, why. You know, it was going back to what we were saying a bit earlier about how I strongly believe we all have universal values and 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 commonality and things like that. But so for my brain and my world, it just does not compute why you would why that referendum would fail, you know. People had all sorts of reasons for voting against. Some of them said it didn't go too far. Yeah. And they wanted much more. What it seems is a majority of people who were against simply didn't want it to happen. And that comes from all sorts of motivations. Part of it is changing a governance structure, which can lead to drawbacks or unintended consequences. Part of it is pure racism. Part of it is just saying, I actually don't like the people who are proposing the referendum and I'm going to vote against it in order to spite them. Yes. Yeah. Yes. But it's tough. That's and many common. countries have had perhaps what, what we would consider, or certainly you and I definitely consider appropriate steps forward, including everyone within a country, which of course we all should be included within our country, but it doesn't often happen. But then when we do look at the details and the legalities, there can be significant challenges. And when Canada repatriated its constitution from the UK, which was formally signed in the early 1980s, I think it was 1982, Quebec had a separatist government. And mm. so Quebec was the one province that declined to be involved in this process, which meant that the Canadian constitution did not formally include Quebec. One prime minister from Quebec then started a process called the Meech Lake Accord after it was signed, in which would bring Quebec into the constitution it had to go to a referendum with certain levels of voter support in order to pass, and it failed catastrophically. Mm. And part of that, again, it was the same issue in terms of it. some people saying it doesn't go far enough, some people objecting to the process, some people objecting to the leaders, some just saying, well, Canada should be one country, or sorry, Canada should be one language, um, one culture, and therefore don't want the others in, and it's all this whole combination but a lot of that was also complete lack of faith complete lack of trust in the leader pushing the treaty or the accord and in a sense it's it's tough and it's frustrating but it's understandable when i'm certainly not a lawyer and i do read a lot of legal documents and maybe i think i understand them but whether i do you know or not is open to question and then how are the courts going to interpret how do the words of meaning the meaning of words change and interpretations. And so some people said, we want Quebec part of Canada. We want Quebec within the constitution fully, but I just do not trust what these particular leaders have done. And that is, you know, a sad commentary on our our governance, but it is fully understandable. Yeah. And then, so I guess, I guess circling back to what we said at the start about remaining positive and always having hope is that we we can always treat these moments in history, if if you like, towards progression or whatever, as as not well. They're of course they're setbacks, but they are stepping stones. You know, they are important stepping stones for lessons to be learned about. Or oh, that stepping stone was a bit too slippery. Maybe we should try a different route. Or or no, we had the right stepping stone. We just weren't trying to get onto it. You know, in an effective way. So. 
that's 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 the kind of way I like to approach when I do climate change education anyway, is that, yes, I, you know, I can say that COP28 was an abstract failure, but but the stepping stone that I'm hanging on to with things like that is I was heartened by the some of the officials who were like, this is just not acceptable and calling calling it out and saying, we are not happy the fact that, for example, you know, the words phasing out fossil fuels is not in there. So yes. they were, you know, so and I take heart from that kind of thing. Um, and and of course, we already discussed about the things that are happening from a bottom up, from a grassroots level up, you know, always gives me hope and stuff like that. And that is something that because I always get a question when I do the when I do my talks, my presentations and my performances, they say, Kit, how can you remain positive? How can you remain hopeful? Because you see the science, you see the data coming in year on year, month on month, which seems things are getting worse and worse and not getting better. We're not making progress that the the curve down to safe climate change is getting steeper and steeper and steeper because we're not starting yet how can you stay hopeful and i say well you know you look at what is being done the positives the the fact that there are plenty of people out there who who are not never ever going to give up the fight and then even the science says that when we do get get really uh, when we do get a, a scruff the neck of this thing you know we're always going to have the potential of getting to a sta stable climate where we can start rebuilding, you know, our society reaching a new norm, you know, becoming adaptable, and then we can work on those inequalities. So it's always, there's always something to play for. Um, we might miss one boat, we might fall over one hurdle, but we can get up again and get back to that finish line. So, and that's yeah. the only way, that's how I keep going, Elon, you know. <laughs> And this process about Quebec in or out of the Canadian Constitution is fascinating in that regard because there have been the different efforts and it was about provincial parliament supporting it and then um, provincial and then refer referenda in order to see how to do it the best. One of the efforts failed because there was an Indigenous parliamentarian who felt that the agreement reached did not adequately account for Indigenous rights. So it's all these balances and people actually standing up for themselves and saying exactly as you're aiming for, well, how do we do better? How do we come together? Sometimes it means that a good effort and a well-meaning effort, like the COP process, for example, mm -hmm. maybe it should not succeed in the way expected. Yes, because yes, even yes. if there is an agreement which ticks the boxes, it may not be the agreement that we need, not just for human-caused climate change, but for wider sustainability maybe it's not the agreement that we need not only to bring Quebec into the Canadian constitution, but as with Australia, ensuring that Indigenous peoples across Canada are fully integrated into society. And some people will say, hold out for everything, don't compromise. Others will say it's incremental step by step. Yep. Uh, another example is use the phrase going for a stable climate, but we've never had a stable climate. And so what we want is actually a climate in which is varying naturally, where we're not changing it as much as we are doing in order to accept that we are part of the planet, we need to live with it, and therefore it's living with nature. And that includes weather variability, climate variability, but ensuring that when these changes do happen naturally, they don't adversely affect us, but we're able to adjust, we're able to survive and deal with it. Absolutely. And more than survive, thrive. Yep. Yeah. And uh, that's a really good point that you make. So so when I when I do these public engagements for simplicity, I, I condense it to a stable climate. But of course, but what I mean by that is a stable climate on a human time scale, because climate is 
not stable and it shouldn't be stable um with regards to on on a, on a bigger time scale you know thousands to, a, to tens to hundreds of thousands of years it should be naturally varying um so you've made an, a, an excellent point uh there um Right. We went off on a, an amazing, fantastic, interesting tangent there. I'm going to spin the wheel twice more just to just to say, here's what you could have talked about. Kind oh, okay. of thing. <laughs> yeah. So um, I'll forego the uh, the sound this time so that it would have been dice. And okay. the other one would have been waiting for it to do insects. Oh, so. Uh, so, yeah. So there you go. They're the, they're the two you you've. Uh, by default um taking a hike on <laughs> but people can have a look at their website and have a look at those pictures not just of dice and of insects but well, lots of stuff on there do do to take it out and i just i just love love your insights on those things and folks do check out um elon's uh website on that respect um okay well 40 minutes in already wow time does fly when you're having a lot of intellectual fun Hey, educators! If you teach any geography, environmental or human or physical science-based topics, then check out Kit Marie Rackley's website at geogramblings.com. There you will find musings, blogs, resources, analyses, and more. Perhaps you want to brush up, learn, or dig deeper into a geographical issue? Or you're looking for a resource you can use in the classroom? Or maybe looking for someone with an award-winning, diverse expertise? and skill set to collaborate with you on a project. Kit Marie offers free 30-minute friendly consultations if you're looking to brainstorm ideas. Jog on to geogramblings.com to explore and find out more. So, what should we think about next? Yeah, okay, let's 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 cover your work slightly then. We've we've talked we've kind of talked about uh you know, bits and bobs kind of like by proxy and at a tangent as well. But, um, and of course, I'll say again, folks, if you want to listen to Elon, be, you know, give some really fantastic, amazing um, points to think about, do listen to the Reteach podcast episode and to Ellie uh, Curious Geographer's uh, chat with Elon. But um, yeah, I mean, what I really find fascinating with your work is this whole thing that about disasters have this massive human element to them and um and we're habituated especially us geography teachers and i slipped and i made the slip up in the reteach podcast actually didn't i even though i'm aware of all this myself and i've read your book and everything but even i once didn't i made that freudian slip of saying natural disaster if you remember um because because we're so used to that term and even though despite all of my knowledge i still slipped onto that so yeah so your work at the moment of what you're doing about about trying to say this is you know the world works in its natural ways we have these natural processes but it's these it's humans it's it's our interaction with these natural processes which really is the things we've really got to be studying and we've really got to understand and we've really got to grasp so uh, yeah so tell us a little bit about your work in that respect this is part of the positive aspect not only can we stop disasters happening but of course we should we actually have all the knowledge, resources, abilities that we need. It's just people who have the political power, who have the opportunities, who have the resources, are making other decisions. So what can we do together? Well, it's about 
when when we're in places like the UK where we can hold our leaders to account to some extent, it's telling them what we can and should be doing to recognize that a lot of houses in the UK are still being built in floodplains, that a lot of coastal communities are not ready for tsunamis, to finally, finally take pandemic lessons from this absolutely awful inquiry that's going on in COVID-19 at the moment and apply them. Because the previous coronavirus pandemic from 2002 to 2004, which was SARS, there was a draft House of Lords report saying what we need to do in order to deal with the pandemic and as far as I can tell, it remained draft because SARS disappeared. So why worry? Yep. And just a few years before COVID-19 emerged, the NHS held a huge three-day exercise with almost a thousand staff yeah, about how that. To deal with a flu, flu pandemic. Yeah. And the result was, you know what? The UK isn't ready to deal with the pandemic. So let's not worry and let's not do anything. <laughs> I mean, it's absolute madness. We had all the knowledge we needed. Even if we go out to other countries, people will talk about, well, low-resource countries or poor countries or low-income countries. I've yet to see a poor country. I don't Mm. see any low-resource or low-income countries. All of them have, well, first of all, human beings, and they're amazing, amazing human beings. But also, there's always money. There's always resources. There's always richness. It's just that some countries are better at corruption and pilfering off the richness than other countries. And so some countries are better at hurting their own people than other countries. So yes, I mean, it's always this balance of, yeah, there is corruption. There is awfulness. There is hate. There is that desire to hurt others. There is looking at certain groups and saying, well, they don't deserve to live or who cares what happens to them. But the other side is the disasters which we have avoided And I do have one project, which is partly supported by the U.S. Space Agency, NASA, and two colleagues, uh, Gareth Byte and Anna Predos, we've actually created a website, disastersavoided.com, to list examples of actions taken so disasters did not happen, and trying to collate it into a six-point understanding of what are common patterns and what do we need in order to make it more general and say, this is how we avoid disasters. And the examples come from the so-called poor countries and the so-called rich countries. So even Bangladesh, which has had horrific, horrific cyclone catastrophes, killing over 100,000 people on multiple occasions. In the past five years, a handful of similar cyclones have ripped through the country, and the death toll has been dozens. Now, dozens isn't good. The disruption isn't good, but it's a lot better than 143,000 in 1991 and over 300,000 dead in 1970. So it shows that irrespective of calling them poor or developing or low-resource countries, they actually can avoid disasters. This doesn't stop Dhaka being horribly vulnerable to earthquakes. And when that earthquake does hit Bangladesh, it could be the first million death earthquake recorded in human history. But what it shows is, again, that's disaster by choice. Because if Bangladesh can deal with cyclones, Bangladesh can deal with earthquakes. They've made the choice to deal with cyclones. They've made the choice to not deal with earthquakes. And conversely, of course, we take our supposedly rich, powerful, world power country, which kit would be which one? (laughs) <laughs> well, you know, 
depends on what metric you're going on, but I suppose, but you know, things like the United States would be obviously on the top of people's minds. Absolutely. The United States of America. And yet it had Hurricane Katrina in 2005. Yes. It hurt a nation and understandably it devastated a city and it was all preventable. From the fact that Hurricane Betsy, Hurricane Camille went through in the 1960s, so they knew that they were in a hurricane zone. And of course, you know, when you're when you're in Hurricane Alley and it's hurricane season, you should expect a hurricane, to the people that the mayor of New Orleans at the time ended up in prison on felonies. Mm. And the person in charge of the US Emergency Management Agency at the time what basically had no prior experience of dealing with disasters, yet he was appointed to keep a country safe. So when again, as you say, while we tend to think of the US as being powerful and rich and the world power, it is absolutely still susceptible to these forms of catastrophe. And again, despite its richness and resources, it deliberately creates racial inequity. It deliberately creates marginalization and oppression. It deliberately has money which is uh, being uh, collated with a small number of people who basically collect it and deprive others. So any country can avoid catastrophe if they want to, and any country can create catastrophe if they want to. We need to stop this artificial division according to alleged income or apparent resources. Yeah, and this, this, folks this is something we can go on on another another 40 50 minutes it's but this is just a small insight into to, into what elon's work is and a lot of people people's working so i can't recommend your book enough elon and thank you well i don't know where i should be thank you for letting me know about this this website because now i'm going to be spending a fair bit of the afternoon having a look for it but um um it's definitely worth looking at and I, and I'm and all I will say and I'm not going to give it too much away because I want people to go and have a look themselves but nice one on the choice of map that's all okay, I'll say thank you. nice one on the choice of map <laughs> yeah that's um, disastersavoided.com and again this is geography yep. because the US yep. which has a lot of ex- recent experience on west coast earthquakes we hope that things are reasonable to some degree there partly because a lot of vulnerable buildings will vulnerable infrastructure would have collapsed in previous earthquakes, partly because they're aware of the hazard. The East yeah. Coast is trying, but they're certainly simply not at that level. And so even within the US, we would actually potentially expect more casualties in an East Coast, East Coast major earthquake than in a West Coast one. A lot will depend on the time of day. A lot will depend on where people are. A lot will depend on how well building codes have been enforced. But again, any rich country, rich or poor, or allegedly rich or poor, can do anything they want regarding hazards or simply not worry about them. Absolutely. Brilliant. Right. Unfortunately, we are coming towards the end of our wonderful, wonderful chat. Um, you are certainly, as most of, most of my guests, and there's certainly someone I can speak to for all, all day if we had the chance. Um, we're going to finish off uh, with the 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 tradition of we are all geographers um which is where we link all of our guests together um where we do like a bit of a word chain really um so for those of you of the older generation think bob monkhouse if you like um and the, the comedian so what this is is that um elon's going to be given a word by our previous guest which uh elon can talk about for 30 for 30 seconds maximum and then elon will come up with a word 
for our next guest to talk about for 30 seconds. So uh, last uh, week's episode, folks, you remember listening to the wonderful James Riding and uh, or James Riding a Bike, as we because uh, I needed to know his pronounce his last name. And um, he did the first clever thing where he actually get, came up with your word, Elon, during his 30 seconds for his word. He was given the word butterfly. And then right at the buzzer, he said, DNA. So DNA is what he would like you to speak to uh, for 30 seconds. So um, I've got my timer ready, my 30 second timer. So are you ready to talk about DNA in any way, shape or form you so wish? I'm ready to talk about DNA. <laughs> okay. All right. And Elon Kelman on DNA, folks, for 30 seconds. Here we go. So I'm going to take DNA to be designated national authority which is within the climate change COP process. And so in theory, countries are meant to designate an authority in order to deal with these wider climate change processes. And it's particularly with respect to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, the UNFCCCC, which is now just called UN Climate Change. So it really is about looking at emissions and was that the buzzer? That was a buzzer. Oh, okay. I really got started. Do we have 30 yeah. minutes before the buzzer? I know. I know. This is just how wonderful this chat has been. Everything could be 10 times longer. <laughs> oh, but I love the switcheroo you did there. But you, because we've left it on a bit of a cliffhanger, that this is going to cause people to go and look at what that DNA is now. So Delighted if they do that. This is all about yeah. finding information for oneself. This is amazing. So last week we had a first where the word came within the 30 seconds. And this week we've had a first where we've deliberately cut it short and people have got to find out for themselves i love it yes. <laughs> but uh, you get the uh, you get the pleasure and the joy now of, of coming up with something for our next guest well the challenge is to link it to geography and so i was thinking mm. of something perhaps a body part like geogenum or geogenum but then i realized that that's easy that's the geography of the body so instead okay. I'm going to go with an action of the body and the word is rictus r-i-c-t-u-s which is about R-I-C-T-U-S. R-I-C-T-U-S, rictus, which is sort of about gaping or opening of one's mouth. Oh, which I've been doing quite a lot this this chat. I've been well, doing well, a lot of rictus. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, all right. So um, place your bets, folks. Is my next guest going to say, what is that? I bet they are. <laughs> well, that <laughs> but could there take you go. seconds. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, the actual the rictus itself might be the 30 seconds, right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, brilliant. Okay, so uh, Elin, to finish off then, a um, couple of things. Um, any shout outs you would like to give to anybody and, uh, and for people to connect with you, because I know you're on social media, how can people? Well, absolutely repeat again to Ellie Barker and of course yourself, Kid, but a lot of it is the geography teachers. I mean, I've been yeah. so privileged that actually a lot have invited me around England to give talks and try and encourage and support their students. And it's not easy with resource constraints, with uh, worsening ratios of teachers to students, and also with the aspect that some of the students, of course, had a lot of lockdown education and have really are often glued to TikTok with that attention span. Mm-hmm. It is not easy. So in a sense, it's a shout out to all geography teachers, all teachers for what you are doing in order to support our society, a shout out to all students for what they have gone through in society, nothing of their own making, and a shout out also to carers and parents 
for balancing these challenges. We education is about our society. It's about the next generations, and it's not been easy because of the people with power creating the disasters which we ought to have stopped. So, really, thank you to all of you. Yeah. And where and where can folks find you? Because they definitely should be following you because you've got some really interesting uh, takes, I think, on social media and whatnot. <laughs> well, very kind. So I'm still on X for the moment. I'm also on Mastodon and Instagram and Threads, and that's just my name at Elan Kelman. I'm also on Facebook, so you're welcome to search for my name and connect there. Although I'm actually approaching the maximum number of friends, so I don't know if I'm still. <laughs> Um, but LinkedIn is another one. And for researchers, academia.edu and ResearchGate. But ultimately, you know, old technology, drop me an email. Yeah. And if it uh, doesn't disappear as emails occasionally do, not too frequently, then always happy to be in touch to oh, learn. Yeah. But whatever works, whether it's direct messaging through social media, whether it's email, um, or you can find my work phone number online, feel free to pick up the phone. Um, and if I'm around, I will definitely answer it because this is about exchange. This is about learning. Yeah. Oh, and, and, and one thing I've come to realize about yourself is that you're very, very generous with, with, with your time and, and connecting with other people. And, and we can, can I say on behalf of the, uh, the education community and geography teacher community, thank you on, on, on their behalf as well for thank being you. so kind and generous and, and just such a really interesting person as well. And it's just been an absolute privilege getting to know you. It really has. Uh, very kind. And definitely, as you sort of said earlier, if you go to my website, elankelman.org, and look at the photos and the themes, yes. let me know if there's a particular theme or challenge you think I might have photos with, which I should Ooh. add. There's everyone's challenge. Give me a theme for photography. Right, folks, do it. So get tag in, Elan, or message us here at Coffee and Geography, and then we'll get, get you to have a, a special Coffee Geography challenge photography challenge for you to get it up there on your website that's amazing oh brilliant <laughs> oh thank you so much for your time and it's been wonderful spending the afternoon with you and thanks to you kit thank you so much for listening we hope you had fun if you haven't already done so please subscribe to the podcast and give us a rave review make sure you share and rate each episode as every time you do this it helps more people find us and continues the conversation. If you fancy being a guest or have any feedback, follow us on Twitter at coffeegeogpod and send us a DM. Or you can email us at coffeegeogpod at geogramblings.com. Until next time, keep jogging. <laughs>